at you guys. Welcome to the Q&A show. I'm Scott Horton. I'm going to do a Q&A show here real quick. I'm asking my own question. Uh, I got Pete Quinones on the line, managing editor of the Libertarian Institute. Thanks for coming and doing the show with me today, dude. Uh, no problem. Uh, can you turn the music off? Yeah, I guess I'll turn it down a little bit. I forgot Blast how long the intro was. I wanted to hear him start complaining, but I guess we're not going to get that far into the song. <laughs> how are uh, you doing today, Scott? A little MDC there. Can you hear me okay, bud? I can hear you. You're fine. All right, good. All right. So listen, God dang, uh, here's the deal. Uh, a guy who is a doctor at one of them fancy institutions back east, uh, I can't say more than that. He emailed me and said, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the show, and I heard you complaining on the show that you don't have any real experts to talk to about this. But I'm one, so if you want to talk to me, that's all right. But it has to be all off the record um, for various reasons. Uh, but he did say it would be fine for me to take plenty of notes and then to talk about it with you guys, as long as I don't, you know, compromise him in any way in his job. And, uh, you know, all of that stuff and get him in trouble. Because, uh, you know, I'm the media, sort of, and he's not supposed to be talking to us. Um, but so, you know, I wanted to, I'm, I started to write a thing for Antiwar.com about it and the Institute that will be running, I don't know, maybe tomorrow or the next day or over the weekend or Monday or something. But um, I kind of wanted to uh, go ahead and get some of this down while it's fresh in my mind here. Um, I guess, you know, as you've all noticed, there, there are three major... Uh, angles to the coronavirus crisis, all of them in tension with each other, especially uh, concern about the virus and need to lock down the society to flatten the curve and prevent the spread on one side, and concern about the economic consequences of doing so, and then of course concerns about the police state and have a whole brave new world of you know total surveillance and and uh, arbitrary executive orders and all of these things all going on and um, typically the latter two of those go together right if you're really concerned about the police state then the economic consequences help to bolster your argument um, and uh, and at the same time concern about the virus doesn't and so you see a lot especially in the libertarian movement you see a lot of almost religious devotion to the idea that this whole thing is overplayed and anybody who doesn't think so is in on it or a dupe of the state or whatever it is. Whereas for people who are more concerned about the virus itself, um, the people on the other side, uh, they're totally dishonest and they just want to sacrifice the poor working people on the altar of the Dow Jones Industrial Average and, you know, all this kind of thing. They want to trade human lives for just money and, and it's, you know, I think a lot of people are, cons pretty much everybody would agree that we're afraid of, to whatever degree, of the police state here and executive rule. You have Donald Trump talking about dissolving the Congress as though he has the authority to do so. And I guess he really does think that, because what does he know? It's not like he's ever read the Constitution in his entire life. And so, what do you mean I can't dissolve the Congress if I feel like it? Um, and every governor in the union act in the same way. Um, I mean, there are hardly any laws that justify any of this. It's all executive order and emergency rule. And so I think people who are concerned about the virus, they're concerned about that too. But then again, mostly, you know, the people who favor that point of view anyway, 
um, tend to play down the consequences of that because it doesn't fit with their narrative. And so everybody is essentially picking their sides. And as I know you've noticed, Pete, a lot of it has to do with whether you're red or blue, Democrat or Republican, and whose side you're on in this thing, which to me and to the doctor that I spoke to, all this is a real tragedy. Um, you know, all these things can be true at the same time, and and people can be making major mistakes and misjudgments too, and still be honest people trying their best, uh, rather than having all nefarious motives. But people are so quick to demonize each other and to assume the worst motives on the other side and all of that. For my own sake, I don't mind saying at all that uh, I'm biased toward all three positions terribly. I hate government. I don't want them to exist at all. And yes, I would push the red button and get rid of them in the middle of a pandemic. Also, I know a thing or two about economics, uh, although, you know, mostly I'm an anti-war guy, but I'm quite aware of the absolute devastation that is being inflicted on the people of this country right now. Uh, and at the same time, I don't want to get sick, and I especially don't want my wife to get sick because she's got a compromised immune system. And I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows what it means to have lupus and get hit with the coronavirus versus not having lupus and getting hit with the same thing. But um, it's something that I'm taking very seriously for the people that I'm responsible for. Um, and at the same time, I already work at home. And for the first time in my life, I don't mind admitting, it's actually the first year of my life, I actually have a little bit of money in the bank that I can rely on as a cushion to get me and my family through this thing, at least for the short term, right? Not certainly not for the long term, but for the short term. So those are all my biases. Um, you know, I'm biased against the virus. I'm biased against the police state and I'm biased for laissez-faire free market economics and the individual rights of all men and women to choose their own destiny, et cetera, et cetera, all at the same time, which leaves me in a way pretty lost because I'm not in, I don't feel like I'm under that much pressure in some kind of real hurry to take my stand and choose my side and, and fight against the others. Cause I think there's so much going for all sides here and I'm kind of waiting and seeing, but, um, I'll go ahead and say, look at David Stockman's articles. If you can get past the paywall, actually, he gave me permission. I'm going to be running at the libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org. I'm going to be running David Stockman's last two articles together as one big one. And he's just breaking down all the charts. And we're talking 25 years of economic gains just completely evaporated. Already 20 million people filing for unemployment insurance. So it's much more than that have already been thrown out of work. And, you know, I saw a tweet, a random libertarian. I'm not sure who it was. Well, I don't know how random the person was. In my memory, I don't remember who it was. But it was a libertarian tweeted that I'm pretty sure that, you know what, let's stop paying all the college professors as long as the lockdown continues and then we'll see what they say. You know, it's very easy to sit there and pontificate when it's not your business that's being completely destroyed here. And that's a lot of businesses. That's a lot of lives. And that means, you know, marriages, that means kids in foster care, that means suicides. That means all kinds of economic devastation for people. And, um, you know, there are people who are not in those circumstances who seem to have a very hard time understanding what it means to have the government outlaw you going to work 
and participating in your livelihood so that you can take care of your family. And in Stockman's piece, he's got, he's just saying, and this is all from last month. Never mind what's going on in April. This is just the numbers for March. But when it comes to defaulted mortgages of every kind and the commercial real estate and the everything is just, we are facing a black hole here. As he says, the doctor's killing the patient. You know, the whole economy is going into cardiac arrest, virus or no virus. We're, it's going to be really hard to climb back out of this hole that they're forcing us into now. And with somewhat good reason. So anyway, I'm rambling. I'm going to try to get to my points here. Um, but I want to say, you know, for his sake, for the doctor's sake, the whole very first thing that he had to say to me was that all of the narratives are way oversimplified and that even, you know, people are saying, you know, the scientists say this and the scientists say that and they're either right or they're wrong or whatever it is. When you and I know, Pete, right, that if somebody says, well, what do the economists say? Then we just bust out laughing, right? Because the economists, no matter how bad they are, they still don't agree. <laughs> you know, um, there are a million different opinions and uh, what they do is fight. You know, opinion really is supposed to be a process. It's not a thing you have. It's a thing you do. And it's, the, you know, they're supposed to be fighting all the time. And when you're talking about medicine, especially, but in all kinds of science. And the reality is that there are as many interpretations of the same data as there are people examining that data. And then the data itself is, of course, you know, cannot help but be skewed by the choices of inputs and what it is that you're trying to measure and what it is that you're expecting to see and all these kinds of things. And so it's very hard even, you know, in the midst of all of this or in another type, you know, uh, analogous situation to really consider anyone to be right or wrong. Um, it's sort of not like that. It's a matter of opinion. It's a matter of people doing their best to to synthesize the information as best they can and go along with it. Like being, you know, a foreign policy analyst. There are plenty of facts to refer to. But what does it all mean? Well, you got to ask me to know for sure. Right. Well, um, it's the same kind of thing here. And there's a million different people out there who have, of course, their own interpretation. And but and he does say that, you know, listen, yes, incentives do matter. But by and large, everybody here is acting in good faith and are trying to do their best to solve the problem or come up with the, the best solutions as incomplete as they may be. Um, but assumptions are everything. And so. Uh, assumptions determine what it is that you see as the result. And one of the, the first example that he gave was the mathematical models of projecting how many people are going to get infected, how many people are going to die. And these, of course, have become extremely controversial in the public because on TV, the government especially, and, and other model makers too, have made some claims that then they have to walk back. And this has come out of um, England and the United States. Trump's experts... Um, had him go out and say it'll be between one and 200,000 will die this summer, they thought. But then it was pretty apparent right away that other people were disputing that, saying, I don't know where they got that number from. We're, we think it's going to be much lower than that. Um, we think it'll be maybe 80 or 90 tops. And uh, not sure where he's getting that. It's pretty obvious that they were kind of overestimating so that they could say, Anything lower than that, and we did a great job, which is exactly what Trump did. It looks very uh, political in that way. Um, 
but he pointed out that inside the communities of uh, epidemiologists and virologists and the statistical model makers, that they fight like dogs over what it all means and whether to believe in those models at all. There are, you know, apparently giant factions of epidemiologists who go, eh, models, and they don't put any more stake in it than uh, some of us who feel like we've been burned over the last few weeks with the different predictions going on here. On the other hand, the model makers themselves, they said in the first place, could. And oftentimes, worst case scenario. So they didn't say, we guarantee you 200,000 people will be dead by May. They never said that. And so now they're not really climbing down from that. <laughs> they were saying that that was the worst case. Now they think the worst case might be even less than that. Um, but even then, the people in their same line of work, sometimes they dispute the model. Sometimes they dispute the conclusions. Sometimes they dispute the inputs. And how come you're including this country and not that country's data? Then why are you making this choice? I disagree with that. And sometimes they disagree with the idea of using a model at all. And the fact is... And look, for lay people, we get all mad when the the a prediction doesn't come true because of why? Like we put this sort of mystical faith in these guys and sometimes they claim it, I guess, that they can see into the future and know this stuff. But we all know that they can't. None of us can really see the future. We're only talking about best guesses. And um, so when they have to dial the estimates down it seems like that would mostly be cause for celebration that hey look it looks like maybe it's not going to be as bad as we thought instead it's confirmation bias all the way down aha see you were just trying to scare us and trying to get away with this and that and which there could be some truth in that too that um you know there was an article in the atlantic where they talk about the models and they say that what part of the reason for the worst case scenario models is to frighten people out of the behavior that will cause those worst case scenarios to happen. And so if we need to get everybody to social distance, maybe we go ahead and use a scarier number at first in order to get them to solve that problem for us. And then, of course, if it works, then they say that, um, see, we didn't need to do it at all when it was the doing it at all that made it work. And then... Um, but who knows? I mean, the point is, too, that they'll say even on the high end estimates, they said, and that's with the lockdown itself also. So um, it makes it very difficult to say, you know. Um, but uh, so that was how we started was essentially saying, oh, he also mentioned that the flu numbers, such as we hear that, well, 60,000 people died of the flu a couple years ago. Well, you usually hear that in the context that well, we're only expecting 60,000 people to die of this, and that's only the same as the flu, and we didn't lock down for that. But that's the total flu season. We're talking about, you know, this outbreak is really just hitting now, and we don't know when the season is because it's a brand new virus, and this is with a clampdown. And so talk about apples and oranges. This, these arguments just don't fit together at all. Um, it, again, confirmation bias all the way down. People looking for excuses to proclaim that they're right when really they don't know. The world's greatest experts don't know. Those of us skimming their work don't know even worse. Um, and that's that. But now, so his sort of best guess about this, and that guy's very full of gray areas and nuances and question marks. He wasn't, you know, rushing to take a stand on any type of thing. It was more like I was pushing him. And he's like, well, 
to him, the closest analogy here is to the Hong Kong flu of 1968 through 70, which killed 100,000 people. And then it basically became just another strain of the flu. That's H3N2 is what they call it. And the reason that it killed so many Americans was because it was a novel virus. We had no immunity to it. And so it went around in three or four different waves over three years and 100,000 people died of it. He said it's the same thing as when the English came to North America and killed off the Indians accidentally with the common cold. You know, for all the mythology about the smallpox blankets, and that did happen at least one time in Colorado. I'm not sure about, you know, what, how widespread that was. But the vast majority of American Indians who were killed by the European settlers were killed by the common cold, which we all have almost, you know, uh, we have immunity to, European Americans have an immunity to that um, makes it absolutely not deadly at all. I mean, we virtually never die of the common cold. But that's just because the common cold already killed all the Europeans that it could. And those who survive, and that was back generations before, those who had survived essentially had this kind of immunity to it. And the cold over the centuries evolved in us to not kill us and to keep us as useful vectors to continue coughing and sneezing and spreading it around. That's what's good for the virus. And so, um, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship there with us. But when it came to the American Indians, they had no immunity to it whatsoever. And it just absolutely decimated them as bad as if it had been smallpox. And so that's the thing about the cold. It's not that the cold is not that bad of a virus. It's just that we have this built up um, defense to it. Genetically speaking, um, it doesn't kill us as bad as people who've never been exposed to it. So same thing with the Hong Kong flu and same thing with this novel virus. And that's why he thinks that approximately all of us are going to get it within the next two or three years and that or maybe even one or two years and that. Uh, he thinks that just like with the Hong Kong flu, that probably 100,000 people will die. And also that there's nothing that we can do about that. That it makes sense, theoretically, to flatten the curve right up front here with a lockdown in order to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed and the nightmare scenario of people being triaged to die in the hallways and parking lots because there's just not enough ICU beds and stuff. But after that, and now that we've created enough time uh, with the lockdowns in order to expand the number of ICU beds and to provide new ventilators and whatever it is that, um, you know, on the backside of this curve, they should probably go ahead and start lifting the curve, uh, the, the lockdowns in stages in, in targeted places first. And of course, encouraging the very most susceptible to stay home, but that ultimately we're all going to get it anyway. So as long as we're preventing the hospitals from being overwhelmed, pretty much it's a question of you want to peel the Band-Aid off slowly or rip it off all at once. And now this sounds horrible, um, you know, to people, and it is horrible, but it sounds like a, a cynical calculation that, well, money's more important than lives. And so we have to restart the economy now so that rich people can make more money and screw all their workers who are going to get sick and die of it and this kind of thing. And in fact, you do hear Republicans talking like that. There was some millionaire Republican congressman, I think yesterday, the day before, who pretty much that was what he was thinking. Um, 
you know, and without even really twisting his words too far out of context, it seemed to be kind of where he was coming from. Um, but the reality is, as he put it, this doctor I was talking to, that this is like a massive earthquake hits L.A. This is like the big one hits L.A. Now, you can design your buildings to be as earthquake resistant as possible. But when a 10 on the Richter scale comes to L.A., people are going to die. There's just not really that's not really a question. The question is, what's going to be the pattern and what can we do about it? And which neighborhoods do we send the firefighters to first? And this kind of thing. But no one is in the position really to prevent people from dying of this thing. It's going to be like that. This is the world that we live in now. This virus is out and there ain't no putting it back in the bottle. And um, and that's just the way it is. And so. But well, if immediately, you keep... let me let me ask sure. something. Um, people are listening to this, and if this is a foregone conclusion that they're ju- they're just going to be screaming. I mean, not everyone, but the ones who are predisposed to be like, we need to reopen the economy now. That's exactly what they're going to be screaming, uh, given this information. Yeah, um, you know, I think that's probably right. Um, and the and the people who are predisposed to see it the other way are going to be saying. See, you're willing to let innocent people die in order to reopen the economy when the reality is that can't be prevented. And the reality is that locking down the economy is going to kill people, too. And, you know, that's the thing that, you know, liberals mostly and people leaning left, they just kind of imagine that when history began, there was 11 gajillion dollars and then the rich hoarded it all. And they've been piecemealing it out to the rest of us ever since then or something. But essentially that there's a never ending supply of seed corn that we can all devour indefinitely and restart the economy someday or something like that. But that's just not how it works. And you lock the thing down this bad for too long and you're going to have major disruptions. You're going to have people who are going hungry, people who become very desperate, people dying of the stress um, people dying of strokes and heart attacks that they otherwise would have got medical treatment for, but they're afraid to go to the hospital or the 911 line is busy or whatever it is. Um, and I, I know I saw this. I don't know the exact statistics. I'm afraid to look at them. But I know in 2009 and 10, there's just a massive epidemic of murder-suicides. Well, suicides and murder-suicides where when people are just completely broken... You know, they don't have anywhere to turn to. It's not a matter of the welfare state or not, although that might be part of it. Um, But people just feel like they got absolutely nowhere to turn to, no support at all, no real community. And so they kill their families and themselves. They internalize all the shame and all the blame for being unable to uh, provide for their people. And then they murder them all. And I saw this, you know, because I'm a news head, man. That's all I do is just read all day. And... um, this is a severe consequence of the economic catastrophe of 2008, 9, 10, etc. And then, of course, the opiate epidemic and the meth epidemic and all this stuff, all that comes from the hopelessness of having people's economic lives destroyed, entire towns, economies destroyed, and the people having no way to pick themselves back up from it. So instead, it's just simply, you know, an epidemic of despair and all the consequences that come from that. So... It's true, Pete. You know, I see this stuff on Twitter, man, where it's just like Bovard says the about Republicans and Democrats, but same for liberals and conservatives, that 
It's like watching drunks fight in a bar. They swing and they miss. None of them are right about anything. Even when they're right, they're only accidentally right because they're in the middle of getting something else wrong. And so you see conservatives really arguing. And sometimes they try to be a little more careful about it. But, you know, I saw that where they calculated how much exactly is a human life worth anyway? Well, over at the Heritage Foundation, they estimate it's worth about $400,000 on average. And, you know, whatever, like this crazy stuff. And, and, um, and then on the left, this sort of unreality that all economic life just means evil, greedy capitalists exploiting workers and tenants. And so... You know, any economic life that's being allowed to, uh, you know, proceed is sacrificing innocent people's healths and lives for the dollars of their overlords and this kind of thing, which is just well, think about, crazy. Think about how ridiculous the left is when it comes to economics. Remember a couple months ago, you had some of these people on CNN talking about how if Bloom, Bloomberg could have given everyone in the country a million dollars. Right. You know, and, and but but, you know, the when you really start thinking about that, they actually believe that all these billionaires are hoarding all of this money where everyone could be a millionaire if all the billionaires just gave up their money. And it's how do you talk to people like that? How do you have a conversation with people like that? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I, it just goes to show the absolute unreality uh, that they live in. Where, again, it's like there was 11 gajillion dollars back at the dawn of history, rather than we were all coming out of the woods here, you know, uh, from the Bronze Age forward and all this. Um, that, you know, no, these people are hoarding all the wealth and keeping it all from themselves and not recognizing. And I guess they really think that... You know, the millionaires and billionaires, they just sit on piles of gold coins, they swim in them like Scrooge McDuck, and they spend the rest all on super yachts, and then that's it. When, and don't understand that, no, when they invest money, the companies use that money to produce stuff. And that stuff is what you tax so that you can live without really working, you know, at your government job or your university job. Um you know, living off other people's taxes and, and off of government inflation. And of course, our system is so corrupt. And this is a thing that all good libertarians should understand, that the right is so bad that anybody who leans left can find reasons to stay left and confirm their biases against the right all day long and vice versa, too. And so, for example, if you're a liberal, you go, well, the Federal Reserve creates money out of nothing all day long just to pay off billionaires. But they can't afford to pay off those of us who have nothing. Well, that's not right. So then they support the modern monetary theory where the government could write everybody a check for a million dollars. If Bloomberg can't, then the government can. And there won't be any consequence from that. And the proof of that is they print money all day long to pay off the rich and to keep to socialize the costs of the rich and the corporate elite at the expense of the rest of us. And that much of their argument is as true as can be. And then if you ask the, the right wing in charge of the country right now, for example, they'll tell you, that's right, this is capitalism. You stay away from us, you socialist. And so if you lean left, you hear that and you're like, well, I guess I must be a socialist then. If this is capitalism, where you guys get to tax me all day and counterfeit money all day just to pay the rich at the expense of the poor, 
And then their side of the argument is, no, you should subsidize the poor too. Which leaves us libertarians really lonely out here saying that, no, you shouldn't be subsidizing anybody. And that, you know, the, the rich must be allowed to fail. But yeah, unfortunately, that means the poor must be allowed to fail too. Um, that's the way it's got to work. But, you know, they're kind of, again, they're swinging and missing. They're both wrong and they're both fighting like crazy and, and proving to each other how right that they were in the first place. You know what I mean? Rather than ever, uh, you know, getting anywhere. So, I mean, imagine being a left winger and having a right winger instead of a libertarian, having a right winger trying to teach you about property rights and taxes. Yeah, these same people who say deficits don't matter, who say that we can kill every last Iraqi for free somehow, and it's fine, and on and on and on with all the crazy things that right-wingers believe. And you can find plenty to reject out of that. And um, it takes a libertarian to attack the left from the left and show them how that really works instead, unfortunately. And there just ain't enough of us to get that job done. Um, but yeah, so... Um, so, yeah, listen, I mean, this guy, when I talked to him, Pete, he's not a cold hearted guy. You know, he's a, he was, a, um, you know, obviously very concerned, but he's just essentially being a realist about this and is saying, you know, um, it's like spraying DDT to get rid of malaria. Like at some point you're going to destroy the whole ecosystem <laughs> and then people are going to be dying of that. So, you know, how much DDT do you spray? And how many lives are you saving this year versus how many lives are you saving over the long term? Uh, there was a thing today where Dr. Oz, I'm sure he probably didn't phrase it very carefully and enunciate. But what he said was we should send the kids back to school because it'll probably only be an increase. It'll probably only increase the actual mortality rate of school age children by one or two percent. And so everybody's freaking out about this and completely misquoting him, misunderstanding him in good faith, mostly probably as saying that the death rate of the children will only be one or two percent of them. When that's not what he said, he said the rate of increase of the mortality rate. Well, of course, the mortality rate for school aged children is as low as it can go. So a one or two percent increase from that, you're still talking about decimal something, something, something percent. You're not talking about as they are putting it all over Twitter. He's saying one one point uh, 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 two percent. That would be one point one million school kids would die and three percent. Why? That would be one point three million dead school kids. But that's not at all what he said. But and, you know, this is pretty simple. This is the kind of statistics that I can even understand. <laughs> you know, not that I can sit here and do the math for you first try, but at least I can tell you the difference between what he's saying about the rate of increase from the current rate versus saying that 3% of the school kids will die and that that's perfectly acceptable, right? But then here's what's interesting. I saw with the New York Post on Twitter, the New York Post said, oh my God, Dr. Oz says, you know, this. And... They kind of quote him right, but they they say it in a shock value kind of way as to get the misimpression across. But then their next tweet says that, well, the local expert in New York says that if we close the schools that hang on, let me close this window here. Uh, the very next tweet 
from the New York Post says, well, if we close the swimming pools in New York, that that won't really help prevent the spread of COVID, but it will lead to an increase of drownings. And so, in other words, they're quoting a government official making the exact same calculation that how many how many deaths are we going to cause from possibly spreading the virus around a little bit more at the pool full of chlorine and I don't know versus how many people are going to die by climbing the fence and swimming at night without a lifeguard right and that's the the payoff so that's the kind of question they're answering is that does that make the the swimming pool officials of New York a bunch of cold-blooded snakes or that just means that they're doing the same thing that Dr. Oz is doing and trying to say, well, look, you might end up causing more harm going this way than that way. But people can only take what sounds like a disagreement in the most bad faith explanation possible. So, in fact, if you look up the Dr. Oz stuff on Twitter right now, the hashtag is or the, the saying is that the Republicans are a death cult. Which I didn't even know Dr. Oz was a Republican. I don't know. Is he? I guess he is. So... Because he said that, yeah, well, you know, we're talking about a minuscule harm from sending the kids back. That makes him the leader of the satanic death cult of Republican profit mongering uh, in the eyes of the people who want to hear it that way. So I guess back to your question about what do we do when people are that lost? And I have no idea. I mean, that is where we are uh, with this. Um and so let me just scan through my notes here, man. Oh, one thing that's very important that's going on around right now is the the contradiction between on one side, it seems like they're overcounting COVID deaths where anybody who dies with COVID must have died of COVID, which seems to round the numbers up. Um, and then, you know, quite famously, the New York Times reported that yesterday in New York City, they added 3,700 names to those who have presumably died of covid but they don't really know that and what he said about this was that and in fact there's a brand new article about this i haven't read it yet but there's a brand new article that just came out about this about how in all 50 states there are 50 different ways of counting the dead and what they died of and that, in fact, within the 50 states, there are 50 more different ways between the different counties and the city governments and from one coroner to the next. There is no real standard. And so the numbers of who died of what are counted, you know, in a completely haphazard way. Not necessarily dishonest, but haphazard. And then also incentives do matter. So there was at least one report out of Michigan, I think, that the hospital gets paid more money quite a bit more money by the federal government for every coronavirus death as compared to other deaths. So, hey, that matters. If you think that that doesn't matter and they're not going to start estimating higher, oh, go ahead and call that one coronavirus there, then you're nuts. Yeah, that's exactly, that is definitely going to make a difference. At the same time, as we all already know, the government created a massive bottleneck in the creation of tests in this country. The CDC outlawed and the FDA outlawed the creation of tests for six weeks before any other companies, or more, before any other companies could really get into the game. And so, like the new Abbott tests, uh, Abbott Laboratories that make Similac uh, put out this test. And uh, you might have seen on the Tucker Carlson show, it's a 15-minute test, this little box, uh, little machine that you put the sample in. And yet... It's a long time before these things are getting out to where they're supposed to go. And I know from my sister, who's a nurse here in town, 
who is has been pulled from her hospital to one of the other hospitals where they're treating more of the COVID patients that they have patients in there. And in Austin, the outbreak is relatively small. I forget it's a, it's a few hundred here. I have the Texas numbers here. Um, in Travis County right now, the deaths are 17. The cases are 4,000. Nope, that's tell me Harris County again. Why is it doing that to me? I want to see Travis here. Sorry. Um, Travis County, it's 1,000 cases, 977 cases, um, and then 17 deaths. But so she's so it was almost 1,000 cases. So she's in a hospital with a lot of COVID patients, and she says a bunch of these patients, they can tell. They all have the same symptoms at the same rate and the same time and whatever. There's very little question that they're infected with the coronavirus, but they don't have enough tests. And so they're not testing them, but they are counting them, but they're not lying. They're making a very good educated guess that that's what it is, you know? Um, and then, so in New York, um, they're finding, there was a story the other day where the city government is saying that they're finding people dead in their homes as they always do in April in New York City, there's a certain number of people who die in their homes and are discovered by the neighbors, either murdered or die of heart attacks or die of the flu or die of whatever it is that they die of. But that right now, compared to last year, they're finding 20 extra bodies a day over what they usually find. And according to this doctor that I talked about, he said, you know what, that's the kind of number that you can actually rely on, um, usually over the long term. But because the method of counting and the lack of testing and everything is so broad and varied that there is no artificial intelligence in the world that can suss it all out and and really make truth out of it. He says, here's what you're going to have next year. They're going to count up all the deaths in America. That's the one count that they have is the overall body count. And then they'll do just like in Iraq and in Yemen, they'll compare that and come up with the excess death rate. And then that excess death rate, they'll try to come up with models to guess how many of those excess deaths are literally due to COVID and how many of them are just figuratively due to COVID because of, again, for example, the stress of having less money, of getting fired and losing your health insurance, of having a heart attack, but 911 can't get there in time because they're too busy, or... You're, you have a stroke, but you're too afraid to go to the hospital to get the COVID, but you end up dying of the stroke or whatever like this, right? Um, and so that's going to be the closest we're going to ever know to how many people died of COVID this year is not from these daily updates, but from the overall excess death rate. And we won't know that until we can look back on it. And, um, you know, again, that's why I like talking with this guy so much is because he's very happy to admit what all he doesn't know, what he can't know, what he doesn't think anybody else knows either. And, uh, you know, was not in a hurry to claim to be able to say this much is true. That is obviously not. And et cetera, et cetera, like that. It's, you know, all extremely messy is what he continued to emphasize over and over again. And, and he also said, Pete, that when it comes to who survives this stuff and who doesn't, first of all, age is apparently everything here and that once you get over 50 um, the numbers start going way up in terms of mortality and that's because once you're over 50 your immune system changes in different ways and i says well wait a minute so are you saying that people's immune system gets weaker but then that's what causes this overreaction and people are kind of drowning of this 
uh, cytokine storm from the over response of their immune system. And he's like, yeah, I'm not really saying that weakness causes the overreaction, but yeah, something about the change in the way that older people's immune systems work and the way that that interacts with this particular virus seems to be causing this cytokine storm, as they call it, where your immune system floods your lungs. That's the pneumonia. It's not a, a bacterial pneumonia or a viral pneumonia. It's actually drowning on your own body's immune system, uh, trying to go after the virus and, and overdoing it. And, um, and so he was saying, you know, what overall, what's really going to make the difference here is genetics and that they have no way of knowing what sort of genetics make the difference and no way of knowing whether it'll hurt some racial groups more than others or certain ethnicities. And in terms of genetics, um, you know, for all the controversy about race and genes and things like that, he was saying you do have concentrations of different genes. So, for example, the um, genetic uh, overall genetic makeup of Haitians is obviously very close to those from West Africa and from American blacks in the South. But it's also very different, too, um, because it's a small island and it's a con concentrated uh, society there for so long that there are certain things about that population that make them truly ethnically distinct now from their uh, forebears in West Africa, where they came from and this kind of thing. And so um, within races and within you know, all different stratas of society and who knows what, um, there will be things that work for and against you. And some people may come out of this relatively unscathed and maybe the opposite. I brought up to him something that Tom mentioned in his, uh, Tom Woods mentioned in his daily email today about Kevin Drum, who's terrible, but Kevin Drum at Mother Jones uh, wondered aloud about how come grocery store workers seem to not be as affected by this as the overall population. You'd think they'd be getting it the worst, you know? So I put that to him. And he's like, I don't know. You know, this is a really interesting question. It could be that, you know, possibly grocery store workers, by and large and overall, tend to be ethnic minorities, Hispanic and black, rather than white. Maybe. And then if so, maybe that gives them a certain advantage. Maybe it doesn't. I said, well, I don't know. I'm reading elsewhere that blacks are getting hit hardest and worst. And so what about that? And he goes, well, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, it could be a, a racial difference or it could be a, a socioeconomic difference. It could be a cultural difference. Blacks have diabetes at higher rates for various reasons. And in fact, I learned this long ago um, in high school about U.S. Hispanics tend to get heart disease way more than Mexicans. And the reason why is because Mexicans eat corn tortillas and American Hispanics eat flour tortillas, which are made with lard. And so it's a huge shift in their diet and they end up getting heart disease way worse. And they're, for whatever reason, also much more susceptible to heart disease. So these, and in fact, one of the analogies we talked about was Justin Romando got lung cancer and he lived for another year and a half because he just so happened to have the exact receptor uh, to work with this medicine, Keytruda, uh, which happens to be extremely helpful for people with lung cancer. Um, and there are a lot of people lung cancer where Keytruda won't do a thing for them. You have to have exactly the right genetic hook to, for it to work with. 
uh, or it won't. And he said that what we're going to find out from all of this is other than age and previous um, conditions. Well, not necessarily other than because this includes conditions too: diabetes, heart disease and these other factors, um, but also other genetic factors are we're going to find is the most determinate thing about who lives and who dies from this thing. And so, again, nothing you can do about that, really. It's, um, again, with the earthquake analogy, this is just something that is happening to us. And there's can't really be anything done to stop it in that sense. I also asked him about the, um, the methods of care. Plasma versus Plaquenil, that's the hydrochloroquine um, that they're using, and other drugs. And he had a whole thing about, man, with the drugs, you can have great anecdotes and they really might be meaningful, but you don't know that they're meaningful. You really can't know until you do large scale double blind studies. Otherwise, it just ain't science. And he gave a great example of a German company that had developed this drug in their small scale, in their small scale studies, they saw huge progress and huge reason to be optimistic that they had found a drug that would treat this disease, whatever it was. They, they spent a billion dollars building a factory just to produce the quantities for the scale, for the large scale study. And then they did the large scale study and they found out that actually their original group was just too small. And once they scaled the study up, they realized that their medicine didn't really work at all. It only worked for this very small number of people. And so they bit the bullet. They wasted a billion dollars building this factory and they closed it down. And then they ended up selling the medicine to what he called a boutique little specialty uh, medicinal firm. And what they did was they did these very small scale but very intensive studies of this medicine and they figured out what it was. There's a certain number of people who have the genetic predisposition for this medicine to help them. And it will help them, and it won't help anyone else. And so the medicine that the company, the original company, had developed at great expense, thinking that it would be a treatment for a broad section of people who were afflicted with this disease, ended up having to shrug their shoulders, take their loss, sold the medicine for a loss to this other firm but that firm then was able to figure out why it didn't work and why it did and another way to apply it but just as an example of how complicated this stuff can be and so i brought up about the chloroquine this is the plaquenil and i says well but this stuff has been out for a very long time and they know a lot about how it works and why it works in other circumstances and i don't know if this knowledge is old knowledge or not but they're saying that the reason that it works is, in part, at least, uh, in two major facets. I think there's a third facet, too, in the theory goes. Um, but the first one is that it helps to disrupt the ACE2, um, whatever it's called. Uh, I forgot what it's called. It's the ACE2 receptor on the, the lung cells that this germ likes to hook onto. And that the, the Plaquenil makes it more difficult for the virus to hook onto that cell. And secondly, there's the cytokine storm that I talked about, which is the, the lungs, the immune system overreaction, people drowning in that. Well, Plaquenil is an anti-inflammatory and um, it's, it's why they use it for lupus. It's an, it's an immune suppressant. 
And it's, but it's, it's better than steroids some of the time anyway. You know, my wife has lupus. Usually if she has a flare, they just give her steroids, but that makes her susceptible to all kinds of other infections and things like that. Where Plaquenil is a much harsher drug, but it doesn't suppress all of the immune system, only some facets of it. And so they think, with a good educated guess, that it's helping to suppress the cytokine storm, the, the um, immuno overreaction that is killing so many of the victims here. And so there's a couple reasons. There's a third reason is they think that it actually opens up the cell and makes the cell more receptive to uptake zinc. And it's not pure zinc. It's zinc, this or that, oxide or whatever. I'm not sure. I forgot. But um, And that, that zinc then is also has antiviral properties and helps keep the virus from being able to infect the cell. But still, that's all hypothetical. And you can't really know. You can think and you can guess and you can try it. But you can't really know that it works until you do massive double-blind studies. And then even then, when the results come back, you, they've got to all fight about it. And they've got to be able to replicate the results. And that's not just Democrats talking because they don't want to give Trump the credit for his brilliant insight to use this drug. It's just those are the facts. And by all means, if you're dying, take it and see if it helps. If if there's no better answer, if, they don't, if your doctor doesn't know a better way, then go for it. What the hell? But um, the same is true for hydrochloroquine and for the rest of these drugs that they really don't know. And it's going to take a very long time for them to figure it out. And um, so there's that. I'm sure people would want to know, you know, about that. That was one of the things that I was wondering about the most. Um, and then I guess I didn't mention this when we were talking about the the scales of the... Um, the predictions, the prediction models. But one of the things we did talk about is how harmful they are when they overestimate and the blowback that comes from that. And they may well be rationalizing that, well, we got to scare them now so that they'll behave right. But then that means that over the long term, people are going to really quit listening to them. You know, even though for the last few days, we've had 2000 people die a day, something right around there. And uh, it looks like it could be um, you know, we might be stuck at the peak here for a little while. I mean, nobody really knows, but, uh, we could be talking about, you know, more tens of thousands of deaths before we even get to next month here. So it is a very real crisis. And, you know, I know cause it's, especially if you live out here, like in Austin, I think overall in Texas, including Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio, we thought it'd be much worse in Bear County where San Antonio is 37 deaths. I mean, I'm sorry, that sucks for those 37 and their families. I'm not saying that, but man, I was worried that it would be much worse than that. And, you know, apparently, um, you know, it, it has not been as bad. And I'm sure part of that is because of the social distancing. And, you know, part of that is because we're comparing to New York where people live on top of each other in these tiny little boxes and stuff where it's just totally different here in terms of density and public transportation is probably a big part of what happened in New York. This is a whole conversation we had. What's different about New York and everywhere else? I had seen a theory. I don't know if you saw this, Pete, but I had seen an interview with a pediatrician from New York, this lady, and she was saying she thinks that like 80% of the children of New York have already had it and are almost all just asymptomatic or barely symptomatic, but that then she was, I think, kind of speculating that maybe that's where a lot of the... Um, 
problems come from is it was all spread through the school system. They didn't lock the, they didn't close down the schools soon enough. Maybe it wouldn't have made a difference anyway, but the kids all got it from each other and then they brought it home and then the government locked them all up in their tiny box apartments on top of each other with their kids like that, which, you know, they probably would have got it from their kids anyway, I guess at that point, whether they're at home with them all day or not, um, still sharing a house with them, sharing an apartment with them. Um, but that, um, you know, that seemed to be a big part of it. And then also riding on the subway cars. And he he talked about riding on trains somewhere in the Northeast and how, especially in New York City, they're filthy, those trains. And people cough and sneeze right on you without covering their mouth and cough right in their hand and then grab right back on to the steel rail. That's another thing. They really don't know yet whether it's being transferred mostly by air or by smear. They thought for a little while it was mostly by air. And then they changed their mind and thought, well, and who's they, right? Some of them, um, the different factions arguing about it. And and it seemed like the answer was leaning more toward people are getting it from smears of, of germs being left on surfaces. Now they're kind of leaning back toward coughing and sneezing more and being in very close quarters with people breathing the same air rather than uh, picking it up from surfaces. So they still don't know that. And then maybe this is the last major point. There's some still flotsam and jetsam here, but um, um, would be the question of immunity. And he said that he doesn't really see any reason to think that we'll have any better immunity from this than we get from a cold. In other words, you can get a cold over and over again because your immunity will, depending on the person again and their genetics, the immunity to colds only lasts for so long before you can get it again. Unlike, say, chickenpox, where at least most of the time, if you get it once when you're a kid, you'll never get it again. Um, in this case, um, he says, we don't really know yet, but he tends to think that this is going to be more like a cold, where herd immunity is impossible. Even with, I don't know about exactly about with a vaccine or not, but he was saying, well, that was a sort of a separate question, but... So spreading it around, letting it go ahead and run wild, and then we'll gain herd immunity from that. Not only is that unproven that we will gain herd immunity from that, but in fact, you know, there's probably, you know, pretty good reason to doubt that now. It seems like there are enough reports out of Korea and, and China and I don't know about other places where people who were completely cleared ended up getting reinfected. Uh, at least a certain percentage of people having essentially built up no permanent antibodies against it at all. And then for the people who have developed at least semi-permanent antibodies, we haven't had enough time pass yet to see whether that lasts. We just don't know. Then the other thing with the vaccine is he says he wouldn't expect the vaccine to be any better than a flu vaccine. And the, few, the flu vaccines, of course, are mildly effective at best. Um, and uh, a lot of people still get sick, although they tend to think the symptoms are less when people have been vaccinated. But usually... It's always a different strain of the flu than the one they guessed and produced all the um, all the vaccines for. And then I think even when they get lucky and they really guessed right on the dominant strains of the flu that year and they vaccinate for those, which happens some of the time at least, that still doesn't make that much difference. Might help some people uh, avoid it, um, but it may not help others. And um, oh, and again, how difficult it is to count. Um, I think I probably started this sentence and then flip-flopped around and never got back to this earlier in the in the talk here is about that 60,000 who died of the flu a couple of years ago. They don't know that. Those numbers are as ad hoc as any of these. 
And those are, you know, they're trying to guess excess death rates, but there's nothing like a test for everyone who's suspected of dying of the flu. And then they go and make sure and add that to the master list or anything like that. It's nothing like that. And so when they say 60, that's give or take 10,000 either way, or who knows what it's again, 50 States forgot how many thousand counties in the country, um, and, and city jurisdictions and different coroners and whatever, who do all their counting differently. Um, but he was really pessimistic about herd immunity with or without a vaccine. And that, you know, essentially it's going to be again, back to the analogy of the Hong Kong flu of 1968 through 70, that we're just going to have to take this thing on the chin. There's nothing we can really do about it. A hundred thousand of us or so will probably die of it. And then the rest of us will ha hopefully have built up some immunity to it or, the ones that it leaves alive are the people who are less susceptible to it. And just in terms of natural selection will be alive and it won't. And then, you know, the counter to that, of course, is to try to develop vaccines and to try to develop as many medicinal treatments as possible. I don't want to sound like this guy was promoting social Darwinism here in any sense. He was just uh, being realistic about the regular kind of Darwinism, you know, that uh, selection from people who have a better natural immunity or better natural ability to fight this germ versus people who don't. He was not talking about deliberately sacrificing anyone in that sense. Um, I don't want people to misunderstand. Um, but that was essentially the deal. He came back to this a few times. This is a lot like an earthquake. People want magic bullets. People want to say, well, what's the difference between New York and LA? And maybe... We can look at what L.A. is doing right, and then we can re reverse engineer that and come up with an answer to our problem. Nah, fat chance. It's not the way it works. You can maybe ask why New York is worse and what they can do to prevent it from being that worse again next time. But in terms of, you know, really finding a way to, um, you know, suss out a solution to our problem from the current different scenarios, um, too hard to tell at the end of the thing he was like look you know the best thing is people should wear masks they should wash their hands they should keep their distance just don't breathe on me man otherwise we ought to be able to more or less get by and it's going to be tragic as hell he wasn't playing this down it's going to be an absolute catastrophe for every family that loses a member or more um no question about that it's going to devastate some communities in some ways um but you know, what's the alternative to that? The alternative to that is that and a Great Depression rather than that or a Great Depression, you know? And so that's essentially where he was at. Um, and... Oh, and we did talk about the, the sociology of scientific knowledge too and about how, you know, he could get in real trouble for talking to me. Um, and, and if he says the kind of thing that's too far outside of what the cool kids think at the, at the, you know, cool kid table or whatever, that it could cost him his career. And that was why he could only talk to me off the record was the pressure. He actually brought up, there's a guy, I have it here, a guy named John Oanidis, uh, I-O-A-N-N-I-D-I-S. And he wrote this thing. A fiasco in the making 
As the coronavirus pandemic takes hold, we are making decisions without reliable data. Well, here's the thing about this guy, Pete. He's a superstar. He's one of the most successful, highly published experts in his field in the world of, I'm not exactly certain, but along the lines of virology, epidemiology, and statistics. This guy, uh, this is not the guy I talked to. This is somebody else that he was talking about. John Ionidis. And what this guy said was, hey, 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 everybody, hold your horses here because you're making a bunch of assumptions and I'm not so sure they're true. And you know what happened? They burned him at the stake. They completely turned on this guy and, you know, totally marginalized him like a Twitter mob and unpersoned him when he was the best of them. He was the guy that they looked up to the most as being the most distinguished member of their school. And I mean, school figuratively, not actual school, but you understand what I mean. And they turned around and they hanged him because he was too far off the page of what we're all supposed to think right now. And it's just not supposed to be that way in science. You know, they're supposed to be man enough and woman enough to be disagreed with, to be disproven. By all means, everybody take a position and fight about it. But everybody gang up on the one guy who said the thing that you didn't like to hear? Well, that's not science. It's not supposed to be. You're supposed to reproduce the guy's study and show why it's fake. Show what he should have taken into account and didn't. Um, and yet, but that is what you have. You do have that kind of social psychology cliques and factions and groups and groupthink. And so you can have a guy who knows everything last week and then crosses a line this week and becomes an unperson. In fact, I can't wait to read this thing. It looks like a really interesting article here. Um, and so this is a major problem is people ought to be able to come out and dissent for or against any of these um, you know, ideas and conclusions and policies and every other thing and have a vigorous debate about it. And, um, you know, I'm actually reminded, a friend of mine told me a story about mathematicians in Russia, how they had this, um, at whichever academy, they had a tradition where when somebody came up with a new math formula thing that he wanted to debate, he'd go up there and write it on the board and then they'd all just scream at him, you're so stupid, you idiot and have a huge fight about it. And then if he could put up a good enough fight and hold off a room full of screaming, critical mathematicians, then maybe his new equation could have a stay and have a, you know, and, and maybe they would give it a fair look after that. And then the story had come up because a guy won the Nobel Prize or something for um, mathematics. And it was something that a Russian... Maybe this guy was a Russian too, but it was something that a, a different Russian mathematician had proposed as an idea back 50 years ago or something. But they shouted him down and they wouldn't let him make his case. And he wasn't, you know, tall enough, I guess, or whatever, didn't have the presence in the room to say to them, no, you're the ones who are wrong and here's why I'm right. And so then two generations later, some guy wins the Nobel Prize for the same idea that he had had all those years before. And so that's a real mistake. Like, by all means, they should fight, but they should not put up such a fight that they win by the strength of their voice instead of by the strength of their arguments. And especially in a crisis like this, 
you know, people should be much more open-minded and willing to concede and willing to, you know, at least hear the other person out and presume good faith on their part and that kind of thing. And so I guess when people are afraid, it, it makes it harder to do that. And nobody, after all, wants to be the one blamed and being responsible for people dying. So it's always better to be overly cautious from their own point of view anyway, even if they're maybe causing more damage in another way. You know, who wants to be the epidemiologist who first says, go ahead and lift all the restrictions when you know that every other epidemiologist is going to blame every death after that on you? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. Oh, one more thing. I forgot if I really talked about this very much, Pete, but I'll just say it real quick here about the asymptomatic people spreading it around. I told him my story of how I became worried about this. And that was that I was not worried about SARS and I was not worried about the bird flu, H1N1. And uh, I don't think I even heard of MERS when it came around the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Um, I don't even remember that one. But anyway, I never was concerned about SARS when it was going around. They did hype it up quite a bit at the time. But I knew then at the time from whatever little reporting I did pay attention to that you had to have a fever to spread it. And with this one, I knew that it was a problem because of reporting in the Wall Street Journal, I think in January, it may have been in February, but I think it was in January when the Wall Street Journal first reported that this thing can spread uh, by people who are asymptomatic or at least pre-symptomatic. And that means then that a fever checkpoint won't stop them. That means that no matter what, this thing is going to get out. Now, well, remember, remember when we were talking this afternoon, that was the point where, you know, I have to speak up because you admitted that this guy said, you know, he, he has very limited knowledge about this because, you know, they don't really know anything about it yet. Yet in January, they already know that it can spread that way. I mean, that just that doesn't sound plausible to me. Well, but here's the thing is they knew the outbreak started in December and, and in China, they were covering up the person to person spread for weeks and weeks. So I think it, it makes sense that they had at least a few cases where someone was going around spreading it and had no idea they were sick. In fact, I think I read about a specific case in Wuhan where someone was going around, a young woman, I think, was going around well, you, spreading you just, it without knowing. You, you just said they're walking around knowing they're not sick, but they're not sick. No, no, no. Well, or not knowing that they're sick, but maybe they're just but pre-symptomatic. They're not sick. Okay, okay. Pre-symptomatic. But... It's making it sound like I could be like at the beginning of March, I was I was fluey for about 10 days and I was pretty convinced that I had this. But also back in February, I was having uh, I was having dry cough and chest problems and everything like that. Uh, but I mean, it, they're making it sound like somebody who's in perfect health, like my wife for, for the last six months, my wife hasn't had a sniffle. She hasn't had anything. And yet they're saying that she could actually have it and she could be spreading it to everyone she's coming in contact with without having any symptoms or not knowing it at all. Well, they're saying that they think that. Okay. Right. I don't think I mean, see, this is the whole thing, right, is it's this presumption of bad faith and this presumption of total statements where there's not many that there's not that many total statements and when there are statements that are that definitive like that, I think the definitiveness can be discounted, should be discounted.
but that doesn't mean that the premise should be. And what they were saying back then that I was first reading about this um, that got my alarm up was they think that they had a few cases where people are spreading it without knowing they're sick. It's either before the fever kicks in or maybe the fever never does kick in at all. Maybe they have a sniffle for a day or, or very light symptoms and apparently are still able to spread it. And that's the loophole in this virus that SARS did not have. With SARS, you weren't really shedding uh, infectious levels of viruses onto others until you had a fever. And so in that case, just like with Ebola, if you have enough people working on it, you can lock down the area. And there was an outbreak in Toronto of SARS. And they just essentially established fever checkpoints everywhere. And anybody who had it, they got in contact with everybody they'd been in contact with on like the way they did with this one in South Korea. And they were able to lock it down. Um, whereas with this one, it's just apparently uh, it seems to spread much more wildly. In fact, there was a, a piece, um, a study that was put out by the CDC last week about a guy that they call the super spreader in Chicago who... I'm trying to remember now. I, I don't remember whether he ever came down sick or whether he never did at all. But they traced it to him that he had apparently gotten a bunch of people sick going to a funeral and then the after party and then out to dinner with some other people. And a few of them died and many of them went to, you know, went on to spread it through the community. And here was a this, this poor guy didn't do it on purpose. He had no idea if he'd known he was sick. I'm sure he would have stayed home, but he didn't know he was sick. And so, which makes sense, if you're a virus, that's the thing to do, right, is to figure out a way to not kill your host so fast that he can't infect others. And if this virus has figured out a way to get people to spread it around without even knowing they've had it, of course, I'm personifying a strand of messenger RNA here, but you understand my point. This is, people personify evolutionary processes like a decision, but I think you understand my figure of speech. That's, you know, like a cold has evolved to keep you alive so that you can keep spreading it. And whereas Ebola didn't, right? Ebola evolved in, I don't know what kind of animals, but it almost clearly, you know, every time Ebola does break out, they, it kills the host so fast it can't spread. Well, it can, but it's, it's possible for other humans to lock down the infected and prevent it from escaping and getting out there. Because the people who have it tend to die so quickly and tend to be so sick so quickly that they can't even get out of bed to spread it in the first place. This kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, Pete, if it's an absolute proven fact. But, you know, he said that, too. He said to me, he goes, look, well, I said I was explained to him. This is why I took this one seriously, where I completely dismissed SARS. I didn't pay any attention to SARS whatsoever. But I paid attention to this one because I thought, aha, asymptomatic spread. There's your key, man. That's your get out of jail free card for this virus. It gets to go on and spread it to more people. And that's why I got all the toilet paper I needed way back then. I never got caught in that rush because and in fact, I feel bad. I didn't start doing shows about it then and warning all of my people and, you know, my friends and family around here that, you know, because nobody and, and I admit this is part of it. I didn't want to look like a jackass predicting disaster and being an alarmist for an invisible thing in the future that I can't really see. I should have trusted my own gut because, after all, I'm right about everything all the time, aren't I? So I, I probably should have said, well, forget that. What do I care about embarrassment? And called all my people and done a Q&A show with you about it right then on the spot 
to get this out that I think that this is a big deal. If nothing else, you better get your toilet paper now before there's a run and a lockdown because this virus is coming here and it is getting out. There's no containing this one. It's going to spread. Um, so then, but he brought up to me that, you know, at the same time, if it was really true that you had these asymptomatic super spreaders around everywhere, and we should have all gotten it by now. Because those guys would be going to the store, they'd be working at Amazon and whatever else, like Typhoid Mary, you know, having no idea they have it, but spreading it around to everybody else. And so it seems like maybe things would already be a lot worse than they are. And so again, with the big question mark, and again, with this doctor's willingness to admit what he thinks but does not know, and what's his best guess, but I eh, really would hate to say. You know, like when I brought up, what's the differences between New York and L.A.? He's like, eh, you know, I don't know. I mean, obviously you have the density, you have the subways, you have JFK Airport, but then again, you have LAX. And you got a lot of poor people, a lot of homeless people in Southern California. There's a lot of reasons why it should spread in Southern California nearly as bad as New York, but apparently it hasn't. So, so nobody really knows. And do I have a favorite theory? I asked him. I'm not asking you to commit. We're off the record here. Just, you know, tell me, like, what's your best guess? Eh, you know, probably has a lot to do with the subways and the things, but uh, it's uncertain. It absolutely is uncertain. So, you know, you're right to object. Like, hey, what's the proof of that? Eh, I don't know. But sure seems like that that's what's going on, is that you have asymptomatic spread where people, if they know, especially in the middle of a pandemic, they know that, oh, man, I think I'm coming down with something. Stay home, man. This is important. This ain't like a cold. You got to not spread this. You're especially obligated to not go out if you're sick. And I think people are feeling that way. It doesn't have to be the law. That's, you know, nobody wants to get their co-workers or their loved ones ill, you know. Um, so, um, but it does seem like it's enough that you have enough people coming home from wherever they've been and don't know they're sick and then go around spreading it for a day or two or three before they start feeling symptoms or maybe they never do at all. Um, so, yeah, it's a hell of a thing. And back to, again, his comparison to an earthquake that... Yeah, earthquakes suck. <laughs> you know, that's the deal. There's no good answer here. It's all bad news and and we don't knows. That's about it. Cool, man. You want to wrap it up? I'm certainly getting there. Do you have any more questions or points that you wanted to go over? That was mostly just me talking and I appreciate you sitting there listening to me because I feel like an idiot just sitting here talking to myself like this. But um, nah, you're a smart guy, I, too. Nah, I, you know, I want to hear what you have to say. I know. I know. It's just at this point, what's really been frustrating me is I've been taking this thing seriously, um, but I've also been taking the economic fallout of this seriously and the future tyran uh, tyranny yeah. that could be attached to this. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who wants to know stuff, who is curious, who wants to know the facts. I just haven't been able since the beginning of this to believe anything that they're saying because it was just too soon. I mean, if this thing appeared and started appearing in November, then it, they don't have the time to to figure all this out yet, and especially, you know, when China's being so secretive about it off this from the start. Yeah. yeah that's been my my biggest problem with this whole thing is just 
I've been avoiding the TV because the TV makes me crazy. And I've been really trying to read a lot lately. And but whenever I hear something and I hear someone say something like, oh, you know, uh, you know, six feet, six feet is not even enough. Really, it should be like 18 feet. I'm like, how do you know this? How does anybody know this? Who's doing these experiments? Where is this coming from? How are they counting the numbers? Did this person die with COVID or because of COVID? It's just it, it drives me crazy. And really, the thing about when we had this discussion on the phone this afternoon was it, this made me you're talking to this guy and everything he said actually makes me feel better about the way I've been thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what's your race to a conclusion? You can't. And you know what? Here's here's a great example of that he says, we have no idea why flu goes away in the summertime. You know, I brought up my theory that all these dead grandparents every year, whether it's 30 or 60,000 a year of the flu, that that's all collateral damage from having government schools and forcing all these little nasty germ factory children to all of them from one part of town to all be warehoused in these in you know together all day long and then we send them home to their parents and then to their grandparents over the weekend and then yeah 30 to 60,000 of them die every year of that and that what kind of a collateral damage is that and maybe at the end of this we'll realize that we don't want to go back to government schools at all we got to figure out another way because the same thing is with this coronavirus is how we've been killing our grandparents with the flu all along too you know and he ends up, he says to me, you know what? For a very long time, that's what everybody thought, that the schools must be the main, you know, incubator of it. But then there's been all these studies that really throw cold water on that and say that it really seems like it's not so much the schools as it is the heat. And that, there. and I love this, there's two then different things about it. why do they keep hospitals so friggin' cold? Yeah, well, that's a good question too, right there. Um, but so for the heat, he says, well, on one hand, you have... Um, the little, the theory goes, you have the little droplets that essentially surround the virus and are the carrier of the virus through the air from one person to the other when they cough or sneeze or this kind of thing. And that the heat evaporates that little water droplet away. And so then the virus is just left to the element, the ultraviolet light cooks it or just falls to the ground. It can't infect you because it's damaged enough by the time it gets from me to you, this kind of thing. But then there's another completely opposite theory, sort of, that he says he thinks both might be true at the same time. And that is that actually the virus, some of the viruses with a little water droplet on it, because of the heat and the humidity, they end up gaining even more water out of the atmosphere. And then that makes them extra heavy and they fall to the ground. And so they can't get from me to you. <laughs> so these are two completely opposite explanations of why the summer heat should stop the transmission of viruses uh, or help to prevent it. And yet they're seemingly contradictory answers and they seem to completely exclude the idea that it's the germy little kids coming home from school and spreading the flu that's making the difference on the margin of how many old people are dying of the flu. And this is, as he emphasized to me over and over again, we've been studying the flu for a hundred years. We've known about flu viruses for a hundred years and we've been trying our best to hunt and kill them and do the math and figure them out this whole time and we still don't know. So you want to talk about we're not experts on the coronavirus yet. We're not experts on the flu. Maybe we never will be. You know, other you know than in funny? relative terms. You know what's funny is um, I haven't had a full-blown flu or, you know, 
cold in years. Uh, you know, I haven't six either. or seven years, but <clears throat> I always get it during the summer. When I did get it, it hmm. was always during the summer. Hmm. I always got like a summer flu or some what they call the summer cold. I don't know why. I don't know why. But, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and they don't either, Pete. That's the joke. Um, and you're right. Absolutely. You're right about this. The experts aren't experts on this. In fact, I'm, I'm starting to write a column for antiwar.com about this conversation that I had with the guy today. And um, I said there that this expert, he's really only the closest thing there is to a real expert on the coronavirus because that is as good as it gets. Nobody's a real expert on the coronavirus. It's brand new. And even the guys who are looking at it through a microscope right now and studying how it attaches to human lung cells in vitro or whatever. Hey, they're marginally more experienced than we are, but they probably wouldn't claim real expertise either. We just really don't know. And what I, and you know, again, uh, to emphasize what he said about his closest guess is that this is going to be like the Hong Kong flu that it's going to kill about 100,000 or more, that it's going to be around for a couple of years before it sort of mellows out in the way that it affects our population, that we probably won't have any better herd immunity to it one way or the other than we get to the common cold, that the vaccines probably won't work any better than they do for the flu. These are all guesses. Now, they're guesses by a guy who's really smart about these viruses and about the mathematics. And I can't say too much more than that because I don't want to compromise the guy's position. There's not too many people with his same job, I don't think. Um, but these are all guesses. In his words, eh, you know, my best guess is probably something like this. But then again, I might be wrong. And so that is his expertise combined with honesty. That is as close as we can get to real expertise on this. Which is, you know, a real tragedy. I mean, it means that essentially we're, you know, uh, shooting in the dark here and hoping to hit something. And, you know, I forgot if I mentioned this part to you on the phone earlier today or in this conversation about how, how good of a job are the doctors doing talking to each other? Eh, they seem to have their own little Facebook groups. These guys have an email list. These guys have a Facebook group. These guys have an instant message chat going on. They're not all necessarily talking to each other at all. And there's no real like central communication point where they're saying, okay, faction A, B, and C, we've been talking amongst each other for a few weeks here, but now it's time for our groups to get together and compare notes together, which treatments are working and why and why not and what do you think and all this. There's no order to it. And that may be better, right? I mean, uh, paging Frederick Hayek, uh, maybe that's the solution is to decentralize all this stuff as much as possible until the point that real answers are found so that to avoid the group think and avoid the trendiness in choosing certain drugs over others and that kind of thing. But then if a group of doctors in Ohio really start having great success with X drug, is everybody else going to hear about it or not? You know, is that going to make the news? Is Trump going to mention it at the press conference or isn't he? And won't that make all the difference? You know, so, yeah, man, that's um, that's where we are in 2020. Earth plus coronavirus. I'm different than the way it was before. Somebody um, just posted up. They did a little math of the deaths that have been reported due to coronavirus. 
And they said for every COVID death, there's been 710 jobs lost. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know how to compare that. I'm not sure what that means, really. You know what I mean? Um, 710 jobs for how long? They've got to sit out for six weeks or their company's absolutely obliterated and now they're going to get divorced and blow their brains out or what? I mean, I don't know. I would assume at this point they're just using the uh, the unemployment numbers. Yeah. But I, yeah, I mean, but that's the whole thing is that number 710 is a big one, but how does it compare? Really? I don't think I know. And look, I mean, I think this is part of the real point too, is because we're not talking about trading lives for dollars. We're talking about trading lives for lives. And if that's the case, who gets to choose? You know, who has the right to say that we're going to save these lives by sacrificing those? And yet the default has got to be liberty. The default has not got to be the local governor's emergency rule and what he thinks is best. The default has got to be freedom. And then you ask, who's got the right to cancel the freedom to save these lives at the expense of those? Um, and you know what? All other things being equal, this is a hard part about being a libertarian, too, is there's always Ancapistan in our imagination, but then there's also all other things being equal. Like um, Dave Smith was telling me about Bob Murphy was saying, well, you know, in Ancapistan, it would be like this, maybe, but in our current circumstances, where 20 million people get laid off all at once because the government is outlawing them going to work. Um, not just because of the virus, but because of the government's reaction to the virus. Do we really object as libertarians to the government then paying them off a few thousand dollars so they don't get kicked out of their apartment? Um, an analogy would be we're against eminent domain. But if the government does take some old black lady's house, we definitely support them paying her the market rate at least. Because, and yeah, it sucks. Or when the cops kill some guy and his parents sue and they have to settle out of court, and they get a little bit of money. We resent that that's taxpayer money. It should be the cop that has to pay. But is that the worst thing in the world, that these people are getting that money? You know, you have to look at it in a, in a matter of all things being equal. If you have cops, and they have a monopoly on the right to arrest and prosecute people, and then somebody commits an armed robbery at your work or, you know, breaks into your house or kills, you know, murders a loved one of yours or something like that. Don't you want the cops to go ahead and do their job and the DA to go ahead and put the guy in jail? Um, most of us would say, yeah, in those circumstances. I mean, one time I walked in on an armed robbery. This is back in like 2010. And I testified against the guy. I didn't point my finger at him because I actually didn't, you know, I wasn't sure if that was really the same guy or not. But I did testify that, and because, you know, it was the old man at the Quickie Mart next door to my house who I really liked him. And he, and he almost died. The guy split his skull open, bleeding everywhere out of his head. It was crazy. It was like thick orange blood. It was crazy, dude. And, um, and I was a little torn about that. Am I going to testify for the state? It's not like I was turning in my friend or something uh, that, uh, on a crime that I was in on or something. I just walked in in the middle of an armed robbery. And, um, you know presuming that they did their job compiling evidence against the correct person that they were prosecuting, then 
Yeah. I mean, I didn't point my finger at him and say, that's the guy, you know, jury and your honor, because I wasn't certain of that. Um, but I did tell him what I saw. And the way I judged it was that, you know what? And what are you going to do? Is My friend, the old man, was a real victim here. And the government has a monopoly on the right to do anything about it here. And so, you know, I guess I got to compromise and go ahead and, and testify. So in that sense, you know, if let's say hypothetically, we were talking about Ebola, only it was this virulent, right? It was as a, or this transmissible virulent is the how deadly it is. If let's say it was Ebola, but it was this transmissible. And so you had this many tens of thousands of people dying the most horrible Ebola death with their, you know, uh, organs being liquefied and this kind of thing. Absolute horror. Um, and, and let's say it's more transmissible. And we were certainly looking at a few hundred thousand would die this way. Would we support a lockdown then? If that's going to cause... A great if if we have let's say five hundred thousand deaths, six hundred thousand deaths, like the Civil War, isn't that going to cause a Great Depression? And isn't that going to cause major disruptions in the supply chains? And isn't that going to cause violence too? And might it be better to do a clampdown in that case? And maybe that doesn't apply in this case, but maybe it would apply in that case. And is it a isn't it a question of all other things being equal, if the harms that are being prevented are that certain to be that bad. And the trade-off is X level of economic constriction. And even then, therefore, a lower number than of deaths and disruptions to people's lives in the short term for the clampdown. Wouldn't that be worth it? Uh, and I'm not really sure. I don't necessarily have all the answers to that. But I think, you know, even libertarians who are absolutely as biased as I am, biased as can possibly be against state action in in all places and are terrified about what it's going to look when only the biggest businesses in this country survive and everybody else gets bought up for pennies on the dollar. Um, and all the, you know, the Orwellian surveillance police state fever seeking drones and God knows what they have in store for us. But like. What if it was Ebola? <laughs> you know, that thing is nasty, man. So, you know, I don't know. I think that we should be honest enough to to admit that that's part of what we don't know, too, of whether maybe some of this, you know, might really be necessary to prevent just as much or worse harm in the other way. You know? Yeah. Well, what do you think um, of that? I, I mean, no, all of it I get, you know, if if the government is you know, going back to the first thing you were talking about, if the government's causing people to be out of work, then they you know, have to make them whole, um, even if it's, you know, tax money. But we know it's not tax money. They're just going to print it. Yeah. Uh, so taxing your grandkids, basically, or they probably won't even see that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I I can't get down with the way they've handled this. I mean, I just... They knew they had to have known what as soon as they came up with the idea of, oh, people aren't going to be able to go to work for two weeks. OK, that's that's too much right there. But, you know, they're talking about, you know, like um, I think Cuomo came out today and said something like this may have to extend till June, uh, July or August. And, you know, that is just. 
I well, mean, some of them are saying I, 18 months, you know, well, yeah, which I, I if they do that, they there's going to be a war. I mean, forget it. Well, I think when they say 18 months, they, they think that it'll be in and out, you know, be like, oh, people are going to go back to work. Oh, no, the curve's back. You got to go you know, be just jumping back and forth. But man, at this point, it is just it's devastating to people financially, man. It is just I mean, people are. I don't think I mean, unless you know somebody who's really suffering from this and everything economically, you just don't people don't have any idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's totally true. And you know what? It's really sad, frankly. I mean, there should be, you know, people who are expert virologists who put the economy first here because they understand what it means to other people. And there should be people who are out of work right now who say, you know what, maybe this clampdown is necessary to save the lives of other people. Instead, everybody is just interested in themselves and their own interests and refuse to recognize their own biases and that maybe their own biases are preventing them from really being right here. You know, Um, that was one of the things I liked about talking to this doctor. He's an expert in the viruses, but well, I know he's a fan of my show. He's. You know, I don't know if that really makes him a libertarian, but I think that means that he's got some kind of uh, economic understanding here. And so and in fact, one of the things he said to me was he made a joke or he saw someone made a joke about working in their pajamas on Facebook. I think he said he had made a joke about working in his pajamas. And then the responses from his friends, his real friends on Facebook were, you know, you have no idea how badly this is hurting us right now and all of his friends who have small businesses and how bad it's hurting them. And he was just kind of joshing around in the first place, but their reactions were, man, that's not funny. Their lives are being absolutely destroyed right now. And he can see that and he can understand that and feel that. And, and is looking at it. As I said, he's an expert in this virus. He thinks it's going to be bad as hell. And he still thinks we should end up going back to work anyway. Because there's not much you can do about it. And then, by the way, you know, right now, I just happen to have uh, Twitter open. And Dr. Oz is trending with Fire Dr. Oz and Dr. Oz Genocide for Kids. As though what he said was only 3% of the children we send back to school will die. Screw them. When that's not at all what he said. He said the rate of increase of death for school-aged children would only go up 2 or 3%. But that's 2 or 3% of much less than 1% in the first place. And they can't understand that. And all they can hear is that he said a couple of million deaths would be perfectly acceptable, when of course that's not what he said. And then what's funny is, actually paging down, there are people who say, well, he didn't really say that. What he said was that some people might think so, but he wasn't really speaking for himself. <laughs> no, he still didn't say that either. But hey, you know what? This thread that I'm looking at, they're all liberal Democrats, and so that's what they think. They're Biden supporters. This guy who, who blogged at first is a Biden guy, it says in his uh, bio here. And then so all the people who are agreeing with him are saying, yeah, GOP death cult. Because I guess Dr. Oz is the leader of the Republican Party now or something. Maybe he is. Um, and But that's all that they can hear. Is that 
Dr. Oz just said that we should commit genocide against the children of America because to save the Dow Jones or something like that, which, of course, he never said anything along those lines at all. But people just hear what they want to hear. And it does go to show that, you know what, man, um, as you were you know, talking about before, how are we ever going to get through to these people? I mean, these are the same people who still think that Donald Trump is a secret agent of the Kremlin. And that, you know, I've seen apparently serious people saying, in fact, Samantha Power said yesterday, I saw her, um, you know, the lady who started the war in Libya, saying that, oh, you know, when Vladimir Putin decided to install Donald Trump as president of the United States, I bet he never anticipated what a great job Trump would do destroying America for him. Just look at this. And, it's like, and she ain't even lying. That's what she really thinks and really thinks that, wow, what a great point I'm about to make on the Twitter here, everybody. Watch me. And then guess what? So, All of her fans agreed and said, yeah, great point. <laughs> you know, does that mean if Trump loses this year, Putin has lost his power? No, it means he changed his mind, I guess, because he'll uh, never lose yeah. his power until America oh, completes Biden. a regime change in Moscow. Uh, so he sided with Biden? Would that mean he would, he sided with Biden or whoever it's going to be at that time? The answer is always yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's it. As long as it confirms your bias and you're right and you're wrong, then go with your wrongness and you'll be as right as can be in your own mind, which is the only one that matters. That's a good, I, I like that because I hate when my cognitive dissonance goes to 10. Yeah, it man, sucks. you hate that. Just go ahead and side with yourself and you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, I got to start getting out of here, man. You want to wrap right. up? Good times. Thanks very much for uh, putting up with me here for an hour and a half, Pete. I enjoyed it. <laughs> no problem. I, I hope it was good for you guys, too, out there. Thanks a lot for listening. And I will have an article about this on antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute tomorrow or the next day, probably. Thanks again, Pete. Thanks, man. Have a good evening. <laughs>